the awesome, majestic, all-powerful creator God of the universe cares about the details of your life. And he attends himself to you. He loves you. Turn to the first page of the Bible. That's a good place to start. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's going on here? Why is God doing this? Why does God create? A lot of people are spending a lot of energy talking about religion and science and how creation occurred. But I think a very important question is why? What's driving this? And when we ask that question, the why question, why is God creating things? It takes us to the heart of the end of John's gospel. It takes us to the heart of what's going on in John chapter 21 in this loving encounter between Jesus and Peter. You see, if you have a deistic view of God, that God is up there, he created things, and then he just steps back and we get on with our lives, then you're assuming a certain answer to that question. But the Bible presents a very different answer to that question. To the question, why does God create all things? As I've struggled with this over the years, the greatest help that I've found has come from the insights of the Celtic Christians, the Celtic church. And and one of their great insights was that this moment of creation... This moment when God created all things. The Celtic Christian said this is very similar to the moment when a husband and a wife turn to one another in the still of a night and a child is created. Now, why does a couple make a child out of their love for one another? Why do they bring a child into existence? Why? So that they can share their love with someone else. A child, in this case, is the overflow of the love between a husband and a wife. You see, before time even existed, before space existed, it was the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that created us. The ancient Celtic Christians, they had this rich understanding of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as dancing ecstatically in their love for one another. In their love, their dance, it is full of joy and fervor and passion. They decide to create us. Why? In order to invite us to share in the joy that is the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's not that God needed more dancers. God has no hunger that needs to be satisfied. It's just that the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is so full and so generous and so abundant that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they generate us. Out of that love so that we 
can be a part of that dance. Now, this is a very old way of thinking about the Trinity. And if you weren't raised in kind of a mystical Catholic approach, if you were raised in a far more rationalist approach, you probably like to think about the Trinity in other ways. That's okay. You'll get over it. (laughs) But this is how the Celtic Christians thought about God and his creation, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are constantly and forever dancing in perfect bliss, in perfect harmony, in ecstatic joy, and they create the whole universe to share in that love. You know, it's kind of like when your child gets married and you invite as many friends as you can to the wedding. Why? Because you want everyone to share in that joy and that love. Something very much like this happened in the beginning. In the beginning, God creating the universe. This was the overflow of the Trinity. The love of God just bubbled up like a shaken up bottle of champagne. The love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is so full that the entire cosmos was created out of it and we're invited to share in that love and that joy in that dance. But there's more. Look down at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. What does it mean for God to say the light was good? It means God is looking at light and he's saying, it is good that you exist. I'm glad that light exists. And then down in verse 10, and God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. I'm glad that the earth exists. It's like you're working in a wood shop and you step back and you look at what you made and it's good. And you're glad that you've brought it into existence. And over and over in verse 12 and verse 18 and 21 and 25 and 26 and 31, over and over, we see God stopping what he's doing and saying, oh, that's good. It is good that you are in this world when God looks at you, when God looks at Alec. God says it is good. It is good that you're in this world. When God looks at you, do you really believe that he has love in his eyes? Do you believe that he is glad that you exist, that you are alive, that you are a person? Do you believe that in his heart, when he looks at you, he says, it is good that you're a part of my creation. I want you to exist. I cannot imagine the universe without CJ. Do you believe that about God? That he has those kind of thoughts about each of us individually. That God refuses to accept the possibility of creation without you. That you are an irreplaceable, unrepeatable uniqueness in God's creation. And that when he looks at you, how wonderful that you exist. We keep reading Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dropping down to chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Verse six. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, see how you feel the weight of those words entirely depends on if you buy what I've been saying or not. You see, if you buy what I've been saying, this is not a cop. This is a lover walking into an empty house with a Dear John letter and saying, where are you? In loving you, God desires to be with you. He longs for you. To join him in the dance that is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. See, if you buy that, where are you? Is the cry of a broken heart. Hosea chapter 1. I hope you have a Bible. You might need the table of contents. It's kind of a little book. Um, Doesn't always get a lot of press. Hosea chapter 1 is one of the most profound portraits of love in all the Bible. Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom. By forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Very, we're standing in front of a mystery here. We don't entirely know. Did God say, go marry this person? And nobody knew, but she was a prostitute. Or did he know it and God said, marry her? We don't know that, but the reality is he marries this lady. This lady who's unfaithful to him. And they have children together. Go and look at chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea writing. He said, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, this is the same woman. She's apparently left Hosea and has... um, sold herself into sexual slavery as a, as a prostitute slave. And God says, go to her again. So verse 3, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lithek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to any other man. So will I also be with you. He bought her. Out of the sexual slavery she had sold herself into. Look at chapter um, 3. Look down at, um, I think it's chapter, I've got a mess up in my notes here. 
Excuse me one moment while I figure out what I'm doing. Chapter 11. There we go. Here is God taking Hosea's experience with Gomer and using it to describe his relationship with Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Isn't that a beautiful image of God? A mother down on her knees with a little baby teaching him to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bit down to them and fed them. Do you believe that about God? Do you believe that God bends down? To feed us. Do you believe that one of the best images for God's view of you is a mother feeding her child? Do you buy that? Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Isn't that the same thing as God saying in Genesis chapter 3? Where are you? Don't you hear it? Don't you hear the heart of God crying out? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you feel in your guts that God has these kind of emotional Feelings about you, his heart recoiling, his compassion boiling. Have you ever been loved with this kind of love? Not an erotic love, not even a friendship love, but the kind of love we hear is the love of sheer delight. I think the best way to ask this question is, have you ever felt loved just by the look in someone's eyes? Not a look of lust. Not just a look that delights in you as you. I'm not talking about a look of infatuation. You know, that first blush of romantic love. I'm talking about being looked at in this way by someone who knows you. Someone who knows everything. I was struck in reading that passage with Jesus and Peter the last time when Peter said... Lord, you know everything. For the first time reading it, it struck me. I wonder if Peter was saying, you know what I just did. You know it all. (laughs) And you love me anyway. Have you ever been loved by someone who knows everything? And they don't love you for the you you can be. They love you. The you that you are. Someone who is under no illusion about your weakness. This is what... Hosea's story teaches us about God and his love for us. Have you ever seen in someone's eyes total acceptance and sheer delight? Delight that you exist. It is good that you exist. It is good for me that you exist. You delight me just by being alive. Now, some of you mothers know what I'm talking about. When you first held your child in your arms, that is the look. That you gazed upon your child with. 
And in that moment, when you are loved in that way, See, I think this is why Peter was able to say the third time, you know everything, yes, I love you. I think when we are loved in that way, our chest swells and we can achieve anything. This was the look that Gomer saw in the eyes of Hosea when he put the money on the table and paid her pimp to get her back. Turn to the Song of Solomon. Yeah, can you believe it? In church, we dare to go there. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is is a lady talking about the man that loves her so much. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me. Was love. Here we see that to be loved by God is to be singled out, to be picked, to for God to put a banner. That you see, she's saying. She said, "I went to a party with my lover, and it was like I was walking around with a banner over me. His love was so obvious that I walked around under the banner of his affection and attention and care and devotion to me. Do you see that to be loved by God is to be singled out? It's to be picked. And most of all, when God loves us, get this, it means that he rejoices in our happiness. Josef Pieper, a brilliant German philosopher, said to love is to rejoice in the happiness of the beloved. When you join in the dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and you celebrate and you luxuriate in His love, when you let His love wash over you and fill you as your soul leaps for joy, God leaps for joy. And of course, the most famous passage on love in the Bible. What is it? Most famous mention of love in the whole Bible? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. Do you see it? Do you sense some of the wondrous depth of this love? It means God is glad that the world and that you exist. And in this love, he longs to be united with you and to be one with you. And for you to join him in the close intimacy that is the dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It means that God is looking at you. For God so loved the world doesn't mean he's stepping back. It doesn't mean he's observing. It means that God looks at the world in all of its particularities like a mother looks at a newborn babe and is enthralled with the fingernails and the toes and the nose and the ear, noticing all of the details and every detail sends the heart of God leaping for joy. For God so loved the world. He bends over the world. He hovers over the world. God loves you. He looks at you with love in his eyes. Do you believe that right now this massive, majestic creator God of the universe is attending to you in your vast particularity with this type of tender, intimate devotion? And it means that he has singled you out of the billions. He's picked you. He puts a banner over you. And because of this incredible love, what does the rest of the verse say? 
He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life will come into the dance because God loves you and because he loves me and because we like Gomer have wandered away. Like Adam and Eve, we have hidden ourselves in the shame of our guilt. We have betrayed God's love. We have loved others. And because of this, God took on flesh. Now think about the stories of the Gospels. This is the God. Walking around in flesh. Think about various stories in the Gospels when people meet love incarnate. When people look into the eyes that are the root and the source of love. Look back one book. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 verse 36. And one of the Pharisees asked love in the flesh to eat with him. And love in the flesh went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that love was reclining at the table, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind love at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed Love's feet and anointed them with ointment. This lady, like all of us, she was one vast need. Like Adam and Eve, she was covered in the shame of her guilt. Like Gomer, she had attempted to fill herself in her needs with men like so many today. Perhaps some in this room. She was not in the dance. But when she saw love in the flesh. In his eyes, there was acceptance and joy and delight. And she joined the dance. Go over a couple of chapters. Luke chapter 19. Love in the flesh entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who love was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see love in the flesh who was about to pass that way. And when he came to the place, love looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone In to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to love in the flesh. Behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And love said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The German poet Goethe once wrote. A a heart that loves one person cannot hate anyone. 
Suddenly, Zacchaeus meets love, love in the flesh, and looking in the eyes of that person, suddenly for Zacchaeus, there was no longer any ordinary person. For Zacchaeus had been loved and accepted and picked and delighted in. He had experienced love, and now everyone he met, he too loved. In other words, he was genuinely and deeply delighted that people existed now. That's why he had to make restitution. Because these people that he had defrauded, they were no longer ordinary people. Now Zacchaeus saw all of God's creation as good. You see, Zacchaeus discovered that God's love is a consuming fire. He was a rich and greedy man. Before meeting love, Zacchaeus did not notice people. He didn't care for people. He only saw pocketbooks. He only saw money. He only saw opportunity. He only loved money. But in this story, we see why the great French intellectual George Bernanos, why he said the fire of God's love is a thousand times hotter than the fires of hell. Because in Zacchaeus, the love of God had consumed and transformed everything into itself. John chapter 13. John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when love in the flesh knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Love, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples. Who does that include? The one that he knows is about to betray him. When he finished... He stood back up and wrapped himself in his garment. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their, washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said, do you understand what I have done? See, what's going on here is that we all want to be loved for our cleverness. We all want to be loved for our beauty. We all want to be loved for our wit and our kindness and our generosity because we are unique and because we're useful. But the first hint that someone loves us despite our abilities, in spite of our abilities, it's a shock. The first time you receive love like a beggar on the street taking a handout, and you go on receiving love from someone that their love does not depend on your beauty or your goodness or your usefulness, that is a painful experience. C.S. Lewis once described this thing I'm trying to get at here in this way. He said, suppose you're a man. And suddenly after getting married, you get a terrible and incurable disease and it won't kill you, at least not soon. 
But for years you are useless, impotent, hideous, disgusting. You're dependent on your wife's income. But your needs and your care and your disease is expensive. And you deplete all the money your wife can make. And you drag your family into poverty. Debt after debt after debt. The car is repossessed. The house is repossessed. And let's say it's worse than that. Even your intellect is destroyed. And you are shaken by explosions of an uncontrollable temper and a rage. And you are filled with unavoidable demands. And in the midst of all of this, your wife cares for you. And takes care of you. And her love and her kindness and her patience and her pity is inexhaustible. That's John 13. You and I, we're not Peter. We're not arguing with Jesus. Oh, don't wash my feet. We are Judas. We are traitors to our creator. We are traitors to love. And love takes a towel and washes our feet and invites us back into the dance. Me, broken, pitiful me with my huge, vast, unending needs. Now, shortly after love washed the feet of the betrayer, there's this extraordinary moment in Matthew chapter 26. He's, they've had the Last Supper. They've gone to a garden and they're praying. Judas isn't there. Judas has left. He's gone to get the soldiers. He's betrayed Jesus. And while love was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Can you imagine? This is the Judas that Jesus washed his feet. He knew he was about to bring a, a, a group of people with clubs and swords. Now, the betrayer had given this mob a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Now, Jesus has just washed his feet. All right. I think Jesus has done enough. Don't you? Your husband's had an affair. You knew it. You loved him and cared for him. And then he walks out the door to the affair. That's what this is. Look how Jesus responds. Friend. Do what you came to do. You see. If your love for someone ends the moment that their good qualities vanish. See, if your love for someone ends when their beauty fades or their youth withers or their success goes away, if your love vanishes, then it never existed in the first place. When it comes to love, the kind of love that we are experiencing this morning, when it comes to this love, the test question is not, do you find the other person likable or capable or nice or attractive? No, the question here is, are you glad they exist? Are you delighted that she exists? Or do you have anything against their existence? Can you honestly say of that person that you claim to love, it is good that you exist? 
Sure, when love is taking its first steps, the spark, there's this quality, this attractiveness, his beauty or her charm. But infatuation is not the love I'm talking about. At most, it is the bare beginning of this love. But when love has grown and become this kind of love, real love, it penetrates to the core of the other person. It will go to the heart of the other person. And that person that stands behind their attractive qualities, love goes to the beloved person's innermost self, that part of the person which remains when all of the lovable qualities have long since vanished. You see, this kind of love no longer has need. For those good qualities. That's why Jesus said friend. Do what you came to do. And here we have. Here we are. Betraying love. With our greed. And our foolishness. And our lust. And our selfishness. And our abuse. And our pettiness. And our rudeness. But he still loves us. And in the midst of our terrible act. He looks us in the face. And says friend. Do what you're going to do. We tortured and murdered love and nailed him to a cross. But love refused to let our murder of him be the end of the story. So love rose from the dead. And now love is drawing all things into the dance. This is what's going on in that shore when Peter meets Jesus. One of my favorite parts of John 21 was what we led last week when Jesus said, come and get something to eat. That's love. That's love. Over the last several weeks, I've been asking you to pray about the ways in which God wants you to work for his kingdom. I've been asking you to pray about how will you implement the new creation that Jesus achieved by his death? How will you anticipate for this world? The final renewal of all things. What is your role in that? And here in the end of John's gospel. In this incredible encounter. Between Jesus and Peter. We see the secret of kingdom work. If you are going to do anything for the kingdom. If you are going to do any solitary thing. As a follower and a servant of Jesus. This is what it must be built upon. Somewhere deep down inside, there must be love for Jesus. Because you have been loved by Jesus. Somewhere deep inside, there must be love for Jesus. Even though like Peter, you have let him down a thousand times. Somewhere deep inside, you must be able to say, Lord, you know all things. And I do love you. So Jesus comes to us in the aftermath of our failures. And he wants to bring his love to us to heal us and to give us a chance to express who he made us to be for the healing of the world. In the message last week, we saw that our work for the kingdom of God must be done in the power of the spirit through prayerful dependence. And we saw that our work for the kingdom of God must be done in the ordinary moments of life. And this week, what I'm saying to you is that our work for the kingdom of God must flow out of Jesus's healing love in our own lives.
Let's pray.